sometimes years ago when I was traveling by airplane in, in Myanmar, in Burma, between cities, uh, some years ago before it was more open, <clears throat> and the, the domestic airlines were rather unreliable, and often they would just leave 15 minutes early. You know, just what the heck, you get on the just leave, you know. <laughs> so you just missed the plane because they just felt like leaving early. We don't do that here. Okay. You weren't recording that, right? <laughs> All right. I'm sorry, anybody who's listening online. Ignore that. <clears throat> So just coming in, I was just sitting here for a moment or two, and as I was walking in and seeing some people doing walking meditation outside in here and sitting, as many um, retreats of these as I've taught or sat, which is quite a few, it still really like touches my heart. So it's not every moment, but when I was walking in here, it really touches my heart at... uh, projection, the sincerity of all of your practice and what it takes to come here. Just the the sincerity of intention to give six weeks or three months of your life to this, let's face it, really kind of strange um, activity in the normal world. And it takes such dedication and commitment to hang with it. Uh, So just really had a moment of appreciating that and just want to say I think I can speak for all of us that when we offer these Dhamma talks in the evening it's really with the the simple intention the wish that something we say may be helpful supportive in your practice to help uh, invite you into really opening your heart and mind into this moment to explore and understand the Dhamma your own heart and mind more deeply. So, so, so here we've had a few days, maybe two or three, beginning to settle in, in finding some sense of ease or just finding your space, beginning to find your rhythm. And uh, it was nice for all of us, I think, to start meeting with people today. We start to feel some sense of connection as they're just this sea of people, you know, it's like some of what's going on. And also maybe you're starting to see, I know some of the people I talked with were, which is normal, what happens is already three days in, maybe it's not going exactly the way you thought it ought to go. Maybe something's coming up that wasn't in the game plan. Might be something lovely, might be something difficult, might be something unbelievably boring. But it might be that you're just settling in and, you know, starting to work with the instructions, the technique, the skills, and that's great, that's wonderful, that's what we're here to do. And I just want to, though, remind us to say of the context within which hopefully we're doing all this, of which the Buddha taught, because I find for myself, first, it can be a little bit easy to get thrown when things aren't happening according to our memory of the past retreat or what we thought. Or we can uh, just be, uh, maybe struggling is the wrong word, but really engaged in trying to get 
the instructions, the technique right, trying to get it to work correctly, trying to do it right, whatever it is. And so just to remind us that all of the Buddha's teachings, the heart of his teachings, it's not about how to meditate well. That's not, all is, everything like, we, like uh, Guy and Annie were talking about, that's right, but all the instructions he gave are not the end point. They're in the support of, as he said again and again, he's teaching, he's sharing what he understood to help us understand how we suffer and to free our hearts and minds from confusion, from suffering. And that's the really the deep motivation of his offering, his sharing all those years of his life, and the motivation of all the people who've carried the Buddha's teachings through all these centuries, and hopefully for us to keep remembering, because I know at times I can certainly forget and get caught up in the minutia of either the technique or fighting or trying to make something happen or trying to figure out what it all means. But to remember, to connect for yourself, which hopefully, you know, at some point, that, that deep inner motivation, the sense of the, the context of all the Buddhist teachings is to really free our hearts and minds from the habits, the confusion that keeps us re-emerging and spinning into suffering. And he said, uh, sometimes, I, I like this quotation, he says, do not settle for anything less, not even wholesome states of mind. And I know I can find in myself when there's been a struggle and somehow it gets cooled out, come out of retreat and, yeah, there's not so much aversion going on. There's more equanimity. There's more loving kindness. This is really pretty okay. Good enough. He's saying, no, don't settle for good enough. This isn't to make us miserable. This is like a, it really, when we think it's, it's the potential when we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the potential of us, each of us, as human beings, when with using these techniques, all the different Vipassana techniques, and there are many, we can just offer some, but they're all in service of, that's what I'll talk about the rest of the talk, but they're all in service of activating the quality of wisdom, of clear seeing, of accurate recognition in our heart and mind. And when we're meeting, the mind is meeting this moment of life with clarity, without confusion, that's a moment that suffering is not created. That's really the depth of what he's offering and what we're doing here. And that's, so saying not settle for less, don't settle just for wholesome states of mind, that's not to be put down wholesome states of mind. We like wholesome states of mind. Wholesome states are good. We choose wholesome over unwholesome, usually, except when we don't, and that's why we're here practicing. But it's, a, it's um, meant to be, and I experience it that way myself, is actually uh, a huge inspiration, a strength. It gives the, the confidence the sense of this is our potential as human beings to really understand how suffering's created in a moment in our heart and mind and how suffering ceases in a moment in our heart and mind. And to really 
at some point come to the end of that. That can give us the confidence, the, the strength to hang with it when it's, you know, not going the way we thought it ought to go or the way we think it should, to hang with it when it gets a little bit tough. And you're here for six weeks minimum or three months. If it doesn't get tough, something's wrong. (laughs) There's no way. It's just pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. (laughs) Life just isn't like that. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think, how many people, how many do you really think, if you look secretly in your heart and mind, that really waking up means it does get pleasant, 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 right? All this unpleasant stuff, that's because you're doing something wrong, right? If you really got it down, all these, un, not, just un, not just difficult mental states, but unpleasant sights and sounds and physical sensations, not to mention unpleasant other people, that would all cease. Because enlightenment, freedom from suffering, means everything we don't like goes away. So secret, that sounds silly when I say it, huh? Just check in your mind. Next time your mind's going, this can't be right, I can't do it. Just check, what's the idea back there? What's the idea? No, this shouldn't be happening. If I could really meditate, this wouldn't be happening. This can't be part of Buddha Dharma. So anyway, the sense of the potential to free our heart and mind, it it can serve as a, a huge support a refuge. So just in whatever way it works for you at different times when you're finding it difficult, take a time to just reconnect. Go inside, see what's motivating you, what keeps you going. And just remembering that's really the heart of what the Buddha was teaching. So what does that mean practically? Understanding how suffering's created in a moment, how it goes away in a moment. What's he talking about in terms of suffering, which we know? First to say, you know, the Buddha, in my understanding, my limited understanding, everything he shared, which as you know is tomes. Tomes is like thick books, lots of stuff he shared. But again, it's to free our hearts and minds, not so that we think that we have to embrace and memorize a new philosophy. It's not about just taking in more information and then saying, okay, now I'm a Buddhist and I believe X, Y, and Z. Because that doesn't help us at all. I mean, the information can be useful, I'll get to that, but that's not what he's sharing. Okay, you've got to believe this. The very well-known phrase, you've maybe heard it many times, from the Buddha, Ehi Pasiko, which is like it's an invitation. He's saying, you too, come and see. This is, I'm offering you all these different ways of describing how I experience being in a human mind and body, how I experience suffering arising, how I experience suffering ceasing. So many different ways. But I'm just offering that to you as a piece of information and inviting you to turn around and look at your mind and body experience moment to moment to moment and see if it's so. See if it's true. And that's what, when Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the miracle of mindfulness, maybe you've heard him say that, it, it really is a miracle. 
this simple quality that Guy spoke about last night and that we will be speaking about in different ways, probably we'll mention it once or twice the rest of the six weeks at least, this quality of simple, total presence with what's arising, but what's actually arising now, not our ideas about it, not our memories about it, not what we think about it, not what we wish it was, not our assessment, just the simplicity of what's happening now, which isn't so easy to do. The power of that to cut through the confusion, the distortions of perception we don't even know are operating and allow for accurate recognition for clear seeing. The power of this simple quality of heart-mind is amazing. It doesn't make rational sense, really, but so forget trying to figure it out. You'll save yourself a lot of grief. But um, one definition of, not of mindfulness, but of Vipassana meditation I like from Sayadaw Tejaniya. He says, Vipassana meditation is experiencing the mind and the body directly from moment to moment, and that's mindfulness, with the right understanding, with wise understanding, with right view. That's the quality that comes in with the mindfulness. When Guy said last night that mindfulness can have a quality of wisdom, that's what we mean, that the quality of total presence of awareness, mindful, knowing what's happening without being distorted by the overlay of our ideas about it. And this is so much not the way we live our life. It's just somehow not not the way most of us have been conditioned. So when the Buddha was talking about the suffering, the suffering that we can come to understand, the suffering that Uh, clear seeing can free our hearts and minds from. What was he talking about? It's not externals. If you look at the tales, what we can read about the Buddha's life after he was awakened, and for some reason it took me years to, to kind of twig to this. He woke up, the peaceful one, free from suffering, into the same world. When he got up from that Bodhi tree, he was still there in Bodh Gaya in India, you know, needing to walk around barefoot and eat and figure out what to do with his life and the heat and the bugs. And there was still uh, war and violence and oppression and hunger and racism and um, unfairness and injustice and beauty and his family, the whole deal. None of the externals changed. And not only that, he was still walking around in a body that had headaches and backaches sometimes, had to go eat every day, had to go out every morning, walk around in the village with the alms bowl and get some food. Not always so easy as with Bonte here, he just goes, you know, it's nice. <laughs> Who knows? Some of the Buddha got a lot of food, okay. But even it said what he, what he, uh, what he died from was some food that was given him that was unknowingly tainted poison, and he died from that. But we're all going to die from something. But anyway, so when you look at that, I think, oh, that's that secret mind back there that when you wake up, everything's going to be nicer externally. 
No. So what was the suffering he was freed from? What was the difference? And, of course, I'm not in a Buddhist mind, okay? I can only say what I can understand from his teachings and my experience. That really understanding that the suffering he speaks about, the root causes of suffering, and you've heard many times, the the kalashas, the torments of mind, the root causes being habits, mental states, mental qualities that are habits, not, you know, the essence of our being, but habits of confusion of, that lead to, to clinging, to greed, that lead to hatred, to aversion. That these habits of mind, when we don't recognize what's occurring in this moment accurately, these are the habits of mind that arise in response to, in reaction to, whatever particular experiences are going on. And when we respond or relate to an experience through one of these with one of these distortions in our consciousness we don't recognize accurately our response may be a little bit off and it can kind of escalate you know have you ever had that when you're having like an argument or something and you each keep misunderstanding the other person and it just keeps spinning like out of control sort of like that so what changes is the suffering that arises from misperceiving experience and then just kind of goes off into orbit with all our reactions and responses. That suffering, when there's accurate recognition, oh, it's like this now, that other stuff doesn't arise. It's really quite amazing. So our job, well, one of our jobs, is with this ahipasiko, with this interest, this willingness to watch moment to moment, what's going on in our mind and body here? That's what this is, a laboratory. Same mind and body we have outside of here. But stuff is, you know, all the extra distractions are gone so we can see the habits, how the mind and body works. So we start to see what's the causes of suffering? What's the causes of the cessation of it? As Mingyur Rinpoche says, we can start to recognize this interplay of cause and effect in our mind, in our experience, how cause and effect conditions our mind and shapes our experience. If we want to be happy, we must figure out which causes and conditions lead to well-being. Similarly, if we do not have a clear understanding of the conditions that create suffering, How could we possibly expect to free ourselves from it? And so what the teachings are saying is that it's perfectly natural. We do all want to be happy, but without even quite recognizing when the confusion is present, when the misperception is going on, we don't really deeply see or understand what are the causes of happiness and suffering? So with all the, the goodwill, the good intentions in the world of trying to make us, ourselves happy and other ha- others happy, it keeps not quite doing it, right? I mean, if it really did it, you wouldn't be here. But sometimes it does it. And, you know, years ago I studied uh, back, way back, a long time, another eon when I was in college. You studied behavior modification. And they said the thing that keeps behaviors going the longest is when it's rewarded in an intermittent way. 
So if it's always rewarded, if every time we misperceive, we think this is going to make me happy, and it always makes you happy, and then suddenly it stops, then it stays stopped, then we learn it doesn't work. But if it works once in a while, you get the thing, it makes you happy. That craving really worked for you. It made you happy. Never mind the next 7,235 times it doesn't. The next time, it makes you happy again. And so we keep thinking, oh, that's what happiness is, because we haven't cultivated this quality of moment to moment to moment, interest, loving, kind attention. Mindfulness isn't to change anything. It's not to create a different experience. It's to be as present, to really surrender into this moment just as it is, physical experience, mental experience, and just see it's like this now. So we're not creating a new reality. It's far more simple, Alec. When we talk about right view, the right understanding, I like the um, translation of samaditi as right view. It works in English for my mind because I think of it as very literal. Right view, accurate view, accurate recognition of this moment of experience, free from the distortions. And then the, the, the suffering reactions drop away. So I've been using this simple example all summer. So those of you who heard me this summer, you're going to hear it again. Um, my, I have a young nephew, and it's been fun watching how kids learn, because I haven't, he's the first nephew in my family at my age. Anyway, um, so it's, it's really fun to watch. So this example, so you know, uh, like he's only three, so you know wooden blocks. And, and so one of those things where there's like a big tray with different shapes, like triangle, circle, square, and the kid has the blocks in each of those shapes, and you put the right block into the right hole. And so in the beginning, he'll see, you know, me or his parents put the triangle in the triangle, and he, but he just sees, you know, block going in hole, looks like fun, but doesn't get the shapes. So he tries to put the triangle in the circle and the square in the triangle, and it doesn't work. And it moves into little kid frustration, right? Big frustration, big, and of course he can't enunciate too much, but I could imagine, take this simple example into stuff we do, it's like, what's the matter with this? There's a secret they're not telling me, or I can't do it right. What's the matter with me? They can do it right, but I can't do it. There's something wrong. Or this whole game is completely messed up. Or all the frustration, you know, all the stuff that comes from it. And the more he can't do it, the more frustrated, Told, you know, like I've had friends who say about their computers, you know, you just want to take it up and throw it out the window. <laughs> Probably, many of us have felt like that sometimes. Well, a little kid might do that, pick up the wooden thing and throw it against the wall. Okay, so all of that reactivity, that's, that's clear suffering. And then you keep doing it, and one day, maybe it seems like mistake at first, the triangle goes in the triangle, it's like, wow. The square goes in the square, it's like, wow, that's great. doesn't really see how. But then it twigs, you know, and this is just normal learning. All of a sudden, the perception clears. It's like, oh, I see this shape. I see that shape. They go together. And it's just so simple and obvious, it isn't even fun anymore, but it also isn't frustrating anymore. So do you see how when you see clearly, all that reactivity just vanishes. We don't have to make it go away. We don't have to overcome it. It's not arising in that moment. 
It's not, and don't think because it's not arising in the moment, it's really sitting there, a quagmire pool deep in your heart of frustration and negativity, you know, that it's there. No, when the seeds are planted, it can come out again until we're completely free. But it's really, when it's not there, it's not there. Be really mindful of that too. Really experience in a moment. Everything's only this moment. Moments of frustration, but moments of the cessation of frustration. So you get a sense what I mean with accurate recognition. When we talk about insight, insight, insight meditation, to me that's like a a really good metaphor for how insight works. Insight isn't about getting more information. Insight doesn't have to be that you have this amazing, you know, light-filled experience and everything's blown out. Sometimes it happens and it'll go away again. But insight is the moments that the the kleshas, the, the greed, hatred, delusion, the torments, aren't clouding perception, but there's clear awareness and wisdom can come. It's like, ah, it's like this now. Aha. And something is understood. Uh, something is known, to use the language that Guy was reading from the sutta. It's known in that way. Not intellectually, but like cellular. Ah, right. The square goes in the square. It's just laws of nature. You don't fight it anymore. It's like trying to fight gravity. It's just the law of nature. It's how it is. So insight isn't like, oh, now we're going to see something, something that didn't exist before. It's that in a moment, the consciousness clears and we see more actively, oh, this is how it is. This is how it's always been. We just didn't see it clearly before. When we talk about one of the things I think I mentioned it last night as well, talking about with the steadiness, the collectedness of attention and the steadiness of mindfulness, part of what I think he was talking about um, aiming and rubbing, but anyway, with steady awareness, part of what we start to see through is we start to see the characteristics of all phenomena, of being impermanent, of being unsatisfactory, and that there's no lasting happiness, of being not me or mine, of that there's no inherent self-sense. It's not that now things are permanent, and if you have an insight into impermanence, then everything starts changing, right? You know that, right? But we don't really know that. Because we act often as if things are permanent. We certainly, well, maybe you don't, but I certainly act many times as if there's definitely a solid Carol or this is Carol's or this is Carol. It just feels so obvious. You know, so it's not that that stuff changes, but we recognize more accurately the way things are and then the suffering-confused reactions, they just don't arise. When you see something's really just ephemeral and falling apart, in that moment, when you really are getting in your gut, clinging to it for happiness doesn't arise because it's so clearly uh, confused and a source of suffering. But when we know it intellectually, but we haven't really got it in our gut, we say, oh, I shouldn't cling to this because I know it's going to go away, but that doesn't really do us a lot of good, does it? So he's like, well, it's okay. So I just want to give an example, simple example of how 
what I was going to say, we, why we can't think our way into accurate recognition. And this is how things are now. This is the way things have come to be. It's one very classic phrase in the Buddhist teaching, yata bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment. I love that because it gives a sense of not steady state, this is how it is. In English, that gives a sense of stability, doesn't it? This is how it is. This is Carol, a solid, steady thing. Things as they have come to be in this moment, to me it brings all the different conditions, innumerable conditions. If you start trying to enumerate all the conditions you can even think of that came together for you to be sitting here now, you really can't ever stop. It goes all the way back to the Big Bang, really. And, and, but just this moment is just how it is. And with all those conditions, this particular moment couldn't possibly be different. How could it be different? Because it's like this now. But now this next moment's already a different moment. So there is no steady state at all. But that's so often not how we perceive. And I can't, with an act of will, decide, okay, now I'm going to really recognize accurately that everything's shifting, everything's imperfect. I can think that, but that, that level of insight perception where, oh yeah, it's a triangle and then all the stuff goes away. You can't think your way into that, even when we know. That's why we have this steady practice. That's the miracle of steady mindfulness. It's setting up the conditions for reality to reveal itself. It's not for me to sit down and decide now I'm going to be mindful, mindful, mindful of breath, breath, hearing, hearing, I'm seeing impermanence, seeing impermanence, going to see impermanence. It's not that. It's just to be really present, moment to moment. And reality is how it is. It reveals itself. If we would quit trying to put our ideas on it so hard. But we can't do that with an act of will. I'm trying to get to this example, getting sidetracked. Okay, simple example that I like of just how are all the conditions in our life affect our perception and how we perceive something, we like it or we don't like it, even if we want to perceive it differently intellectually. Just to give a little example. So um, there's a musician I really appreciate, a classical cellist named Yo-Yo Ma. Maybe you've heard he's very well known in the, in the European classical style of music. He lives in Boston, but anyway. Uh, I really appreciate his music, but I appreciate the things I've seen about his being because he seems very open, very inclusive, very like meeting each new experience with like this sense of open wonder and interest, which to me personifies mindfulness. Like, wow, what's this? So quite some years ago, he uh, organized a group he calls the Silk Road Project. Some of you probably know about it. The Silk Road You know, the Silk Road is that whole area of the world from the Middle East through Turkey and the Middle East and Central Asia through to China that used to be the route of the the, the trade routes from the Middle Ages from between Europe and China. So it's called the Silk Road Project. And what he did, just as organizing, was getting musicians together from all these different countries, musicians who play instruments, who compose, who sing, and getting from all these different countries together to play together. But what he did, it's not as if we'd say, okay, now here's a Mongolian 
piece of music and we'll all play this Mongolian piece of music. Now here's a, a, a North African piece of music, we'll play that. And now here's a, a European classical piece, we'll play that. It's not that at all, not that sense of separation. But to get the musicians together in different groupings and, you know, they'll write, like for example, you might have someone from, from Central Asia, from Turkey, from Mongolia, from North Africa. They may all be together. Someone writes a piece for those particular musicians. They'll be playing the different instruments from the different places, the different maybe vocalizing, like Mongolian, you know, overtone vocalizing, different uh, tones, different scales, and, and working it together, making something completely new and bringing all these different cultural musicians together. Okay, I love the idea. I think it's so far out, you know. I keep buying the CDs. I really, really want to really appreciate and enjoy listening to it. And I, I don't. <laughs> I keep trying. My mind loves that he's doing this, that these people are working, making something new. The conditioning of the kind of music that this particular mind consciousness enjoys hearing isn't that the different tones, the different rhythms, and you know, it's like, oh, it's every few months I try again, I try again, you know. And it's not that it's good or bad or you should or you shouldn't. I'm just giving that as an example of how the conditioning of our life affect our perceptions and what, you know, we find something pleasant, we find something unpleasant. And we can't just change it because we want to. So something like that, that's just interesting to see. But on these level of these really basic habits of perception, of not recognizing impermanence or the unsatisfactoriness because things go away, or recognizing sense of solid self where there isn't one. That's so, um, well, when we practice it so much, it just feels so, not even familiar, just like the way things are, you know, that's just how it is, that so much we don't even recognize when those particular um, misperceptions are operating. Certainly when we're just going around in daily life. If we don't have the habit, if we haven't developed the habit of just bringing mindfulness to our body and mind. But if we keep bringing mindfulness to our moment-to-moment experience here, you'll start to see it. And the thing is when we start to see these things, not to think, oh no, here's sense of self again, when am I going to get rid of it? No, no. I mean, you could think that if you want, but it's not helpful. But more you think, wow, yeah, look at that. That's how sense of self arises in a moment. This is the effect it has. Mindfulness, awareness can notice that as well as anything else. There's nothing that in our experience that need be outside the field, the realm of mindful awareness. If you find yourself saying anything, well, I can't be mindful because this is happening, let that be a clue. Wow, this feels like this. Don't do anything about it, but widen the field of mindfulness. Oh, this is happening. It's like this now, to use Ajahn Sumedho's language. So insight doesn't come through an act of will, but through the long process of steady awareness. I want to talk a little bit then in terms of the, the wrong view, the misperception, 
just to, in a light way, to say a few words about the, in some way, the core one, the, the sense of, uh, wrong view, of Sakaya Ditti, translated as personality view, sense of self. A, a way, a perception that arises in many moments of presence that takes uh, any particular experience that's occurring as being me or mine. So, when we talk about our moment-to-moment experience here, breaking it down the way the Buddha talked about it, really the most kind of simple, elemental level. And I think, I can't remember if someone talked about this already. Um, There's six, six sense experiences, right? There's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching with the body, and all the mental experience. So as you see, as your awareness begins to get a little more steady, that's what's happening all day long. There's a thought, mental experience, there's seeing, there's hearing, there's sensation in the body, there's sensation of breathing, there's hearing, there's seeing, there's a thought, there's an emotion. But all these six sense experiences are just kind of arising and passing, arising and passing all day long. Have you noticed that? There's no time all day long, all day long, that they're not happening. There's always something, always something awareness, mindfulness can notice. If you ever attempted to come in and go, nothing's happening, (laughs) we're not going to let you get away with that. (laughs) There's always something going on. So a lot of it, there's thoughts, there's sights, sounds, sensations. We're not taking each sight each sound as me or mine. That would be, I hope you're not, because it would be unbearable, wouldn't it? I mean, how many sights and sounds and thoughts and physical sensations have you experienced today? Can you even come close to a number? You know, I'd say, you know, millions, who knows? If every single one of them was me or mine, can you imagine? just like tossed around, oh, that sound is me, I don't like it, oh, this sound, no, this thought, this. Well, we do that with enough stuff. I don't know how we get through life, really. You know, when you see here, you're just walking. So, so notice, say if you're doing walking meditation, you're outside. There's many sights and sounds that come and go, you're more or less aware of them, and they're just coming and going, no big, no big deal. And suddenly one sound arises or one sensation arises that somehow the attention and the energy of mind, the mind kind of isolates, it's like it fixates on that, even if it's just for a second. Not the fixation of just clear recognition and mindfulness, fixation with a kind of a gripping of, oh, this sound isn't okay. It's already gone into my hearing isn't happy with this sound. Or a sensation, it's easier to see that with a sensation. If you really, when you start to get quiet, you'll see there's lots of sensations, just little blip, 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 coming and going all day. And suddenly there's one that's really like, this is my me, you know, or whatever it is. That sense of uh, kind of privileging a particular perception, a particular experience as being me or mine. Of course, we don't say that. 
we don't get like a big neon sign. Okay, Sakaya Ditti arising, Sakaya Ditti arising, watch out. We don't because it just feels normal. So we go, oh, this sensation, this isn't okay. Let me take something more, not pain, but say, okay, earlier today when I was down at my place kind of looking at this, and suddenly it just felt so hot and humid, which normally I like the heat, but it was just so hot. So I was just sitting there. I mean, I wasn't noting because I was, I was thinking about this, but I was aware of hot, hot, you know, heat, heat. It's just like, but then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, it's so hot. You get a sense of the difference? And so by that time, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the attention identifying with the heat. It had already, in that amount of time, gone from heat, unpleasant, it shouldn't be this way, it's affecting me, I don't like it, what can I do? You know, really fast, there's a whole story going on. The reaction, what's the heat, what can I do? And then when I walked in here, I said, oh, it's, it's so cool in here, how nice. You know, if I'd remembered it was air-conditioned, maybe I would have thought, oh, I need to go up to the hall, it's air-conditioned. We want to do something, we want to fix it, but it's, it's not that you can't do something about it. But the suffering that was going on, It was the same heat that it was the moment before the attention glommed onto it as my body feeling uncomfortable. The same heat. The suffering wasn't the heat. The suffering is all those reactions that come when there's a moment of Sakaya Ditti taking anything as being me or mine. Goes on all the time. Attention gets glued to the object, and then the whole series of reactions happens in no time. I'm saying this don't waste time judging this. This is fascinating. Just to see this is the habit of how our human minds work. When we say, let's see, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Don't believe anything I say, and don't dismiss it either. Look and see. And when we see Sakaya Ditya arising like that, that's great. Bringing awareness can notice, oh yeah, a sense of self is like this. And keep, keep the steady awareness going and notice the effects of it. What are some of the effects of it? You keep noticing. Because the more and more there's the accurate recognition of mindfulness, that's when the wisdom can come in and the reactions that cause suffering start to drop away. So you can often do it like at the heat example I'm giving. I whipped it up a little bit. I wasn't really like in horrible, terrible, you know, suicidal suffering. And it's just like, ugh. But then I could see that happening because my mind had been quite fine a minute ago. I said, yeah, do you really want to get all whipped up about this? So sometimes you can really notice that and go, oh yeah, this is aversion. No, heat is like this. Just come back to the heat, not feed the aversion. It's fine. Sometimes it's a lot bigger and we can't do that but we can keep the mindfulness going to see, to see what's really bringing happiness, what's bringing suffering. This is um, from Choki Nima Rinpoche. He said, you know, we want happiness, but the causes of happiness, understanding selflessness, loving kindness, compassion, we don't always give so much attention to these qualities. Instead, the habit of our mind is we get involved more in the suffering and the difficult states of heart and mind. We get more, no, this is my language, we get more involved in the reactions. It's more what we're used to. It's more what feels real. Almost like it's so habitual we take refuge 
in the wanting, in the aversion, in the sense of self, just because it feels at home. As we know, home isn't always comfortable, but it's home. So starting to just explore this as you go through the days, just see. It's just hearing, seeing, touching, and all of a sudden, me. Notice the effect. Lama Drime says, um, I, I like this way of describing it. He says, you know, when we're just being present with things as they are, it's all nature. We aren't separate from nature. There's whatever's arising due to the causes and conditions, the sound, the sight, the sensation, the, the bird singing, whatever's going, it's all arising. We are part of it all. But as soon as that sense of self, that fixation on a particular experience comes up and isn't seen, he says, he says everything starts to solidify when we hold to a certain experience as me. He says he comes from just the, the vastness of things as they are, as we get locked in, he says, like the narrow bandwidth of me, human being, separate from everything else. Just kind of feeling that sense of narrowness. The Dalai Lama, from this book, I was using this book a lot this summer, called The Book of Joy, which is a series of conversations between the, La- the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu from South Africa. You, you all know who Archbishop Desmond Tutu is, right? Both of them are Nobel Peace Prize winners. And um, Archbishop Tutu was the chair after apartheid ended in South Africa of the um, Truth and Reconciliation Council. So this is a long series of conversations, them about Dhamma, about joy. So the Dalai Lama is saying, the paradox is that although the drive behind excessive self-focus, and I'm translating excessive self-focus as the sense of the mind just fixating on something as mere mind, is to seek greater happiness for yourself. But the paradox is it ends up doing exactly the opposite. You become disconnected and alienated from others when we focus too much on ourselves. With too much self-focus, when it's all about me or mine, and at times it's like that for, for all of us or most of us, our vision becomes narrow. And with this, even a small problem appears out of proportion and unbearable. Have you ever noticed that? That's a big thing that comes up on retreat. Some little thing just is so unbearable, so exaggerated. That's okay. We call it... We have a shorthand, we call it yogi mind. When there's suddenly there's wanting or aversion and it's so strong and so important that it takes over your world for a while. We call it yogi mind, this exaggeration. Someone bursts in the office and says, I've got to have Tom's toothpaste or I'm just going to die, you know, with that kind of energy. Um, so this narrowness that comes. And then um, Bishop Tutu, What he adds to that, he says, you come soon to the concept that we have at home, he's called at home in South Africa, the concept of Ubuntu. The concept is that a person is a person through other persons. You realize that in a very real sense, we're part of a profound complementarity. I mean, I could not speak as I am speaking without having learned it from other human beings. I learned to be a human being from other human beings. We belong in this delicate network. 
it is actually quite profound. Unfortunately, in our world, we tend not to recognize that we're part of this network until times of great disaster. You see, and he just gives examples about how that can happen. And I was just listening today to the, um, the, the news uh, on the radio. So they were giving examples, you know, of these, these horrific hurricanes that happened in the last couple of weeks. And of course, you can hear all kinds of stories about horrible things that happened and, and um, violin and looting and all. But you also hear uplifting stories. I just heard one today that's just exactly what he was talking about. I just thought I'd share it because it's just sweet. But why does it have to wait, he said, till times of great suffering to feel, to recognize that we're all part of this network, not just me and you. So this was in St. Thomas, you know, in the Virgin Islands, which they says 90% of the homes were damaged or destroyed. 90%. Unbelievable. And this story is about a small nursing home um, with you know, tw- only 12 elderly people live there. And all but three of them were not able to get out of bed, were not able to walk. And so when the hurricane's hitting, in the rooms, you know, the ceiling's being blown down, the walls are being blown down, glass is shattering, flooding the room, and they can't get out by themselves. The few people working there, they're talking to one of the nurses, we're, we're just trying to hold the door shut so it doesn't blow in. And, you know, we couldn't, there's just the three of us to try and move everyone. But... Right next door to this nursing home was uh, an institution, like a lockdown institution for um, adolescent boys, I think, like they'd either committed crimes, they were in, in, in trouble, it was like, like a little, you know, pre-jail kind of thing. And so they were in this place next door, locked down. But I guess they, they opened it up, and so several of those young boys, seen as criminals or whatever, they came over, and in the dark and no electricity, they moved all the elderly people into the dining room where they could all be there together. And then they stayed with them in the dark all night because there was no electricity, protecting them because the windows were shattering, shattered glass was flying everywhere, the wind was flying everywhere. So these young guys stayed with these elderly people and protected them all night. And they were just talking to the woman who was running the nursing home, who was just, and actually the person who was running the lockdown too. And they were just both, you know, so moved, so touched. And we are, when we re-recognize, you know, it's like re-recognize what's already been true, that we're not so separate. So in little ways here, we're not talking, it's not about that, but in little ways, just watching how the sense of, um, Sakaya Ditti comes up, and when it comes, notice that sense of separation or just the sense of suffering, if it's there. Notice when it's not there. We don't have to wait for a disaster. You know, we can really watch moment to moment to moment because the truth reveals itself. That's what's so, that's what I love about the Dharma. It's not that we have to figure it all out in our mind and then do the right thing and make that happen. We can't. If you could give that up, you would do yourself so much good. And just trust, moment to moment to moment, simple awareness. And that's what I love. The wisdom arises through the steadiness of awareness and the way things are, yata bhuta, it reveals itself. We actually don't know how it is, so we can't think our way into it. 
we just really trust again and again and again the simplicity and honesty of moment to moment of what's happening now. I'm so confused. Oh, confusion is like this. You think, what? I came here to say confusion is like this? I don't think so. I came here to get really clear. And then, oh, wanting is like this. Now it's happening. Oh, sensation of breathing. Okay, tightness. So what? The breath was like this before. I get it. Let's have a new breath. Let's have something to, ah, oh, that's wanting. Wanting is like this. Again, again, again. Just this moment. All there is is this moment. Sati, mindfulness, of just what is occurring in that simplicity, in that moment, is a stepping out of Sakaya Ditti, it's a stepping out of reactivity, it's a stepping out of misperception, and just being present with this moment. You don't have to make a big story, just being present with things as they are. Sometimes we think, of, this is something Ajahn Sumedho, who's a, uh, he's an American man who's been a monk in the Thai forest tradition for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. I find him quite inspiring. He says, in terms of talking about this Sakaya Ditti, this personality view, noticing this tendency to fixate on an experience, a sense of self, it's often we think, oh, you, you shouldn't talk about this stuff or look at this stuff until you've been practicing for quite some time because it's so um, difficult, you know, so subtle. And it makes people crazy. But he says, and this I really believe, I go along, that's why I'm bringing it up, just to look at it lightly. He says, that doesn't make sense. He says, I thought to myself, why should I practice for 20 years from delusion of I'm practicing to achieve something for me? Why should I spend 20 years practicing from that motivation, which is so confused, you know? We can start practicing, we can start to recognize Sakaya Ditti now. A lot of the time we won't, but sometimes we can. It's just another arising experience, a way that the, the, the mental factor of clinging or aversion relates to a particular experience. Notice how it behaves. Notice when it's gone. And you know, even Sakaya Ditti, don't take it personally. It's just a habit of mind. We all have personalities. And guess what? <laughs> I kept waiting to get a new personality. We don't really get a new personality. <laughs> Maybe it, you know, kind of gets a little mellower around the edges or something, but we don't get a new one. <laughs> So this is our meditation. This is the work of our meditation. All the techniques and the tools are to help us cultivate this simplicity of present moment mindfulness. But the steadiness, the clarity, is really where the power comes. So that's why we say, and when when Guy was talking about the, the connecting and sustaining, that's just in one moment, but it's just that sense Let me put it in completely different language, in case you didn't like that language. Or maybe you don't like my language, then ignore my language and listen to Guy. That's why there's all different ones of us. We all speak differently. Um, Connecting, think of it as just completely relaxing with presence into the experience. It's like this now. And the sustaining is just being there with interest and noticing how it changes, if it changes, how it behaves. That's it. 
Sustaining is just keeping the attention with what's happening. It's not trying to sustain the experience. That's not seeing impermanence. Sometimes people say, I'm trying to sustain this sense, this this, uh, sensation, but then something else arises. I go, yeah, hello, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. But what we cultivate as we expand the instructions over these days is the moment-to-moment-to-moment steadiness of mindful awareness. Even if the objects are changing, the collectedness and the steadiness get stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's this steadiness, this continuity, that reveals the confused habits of mind. If we're just mindful here for a minute, then we space out. Then we're mindful here. I mean, we do that now because we're just, we're just learning. It takes setting up the conditions for the steadiness to come. But if we don't understand why we always are going on about the, the steadiness, the persistence, if we don't understand why, then I'm thinking, okay, that was a good sitting. I deserve a holiday now. I'm going to go whatever, not, be, not pay attention. And then I'll come back and I'll walk and I'll really walk and I'll really do it. And thought, okay, that was good. I put in my effort. Now I'm going to take a little holiday. And uh, you can do that. It's tiring. It's not so satisfying. More is the steady, just the relax into this moment. This moment. As Guy said last night, you put your fingers together. How much effort does that take? Not much. But this moment. This moment. This moment. And again, the, the beauty of the way things are, the Dhamma, the laws of nature, is that the truth reveals itself when we're able and willing to be steady with our kind and loving attention. Not to make it be a way, but see, oh, it's like this now. It's like this now. It's like this now. So this, this is really our, our practice. I just want to end... From two, two Burmese adults. First is from Tejaniya. As mindfulness is remembered more and more frequently, gradually it develops its own momentum. I mean, we don't have to keep remembering, it starts to do itself. We come to appreciate the moments of awareness. We come to appreciate them more than our entrancements with the reactions of mind or whatever is arising. Steady mindfulness is the condition for wisdom and insight to arise. And from Sayada Upandita, same thing in a different way. When mindfulness is persistently and repeatedly activated, wisdom arises. There will be insight into the true nature of body and mind. So that's our practice. But it all boils down to only one moment, not the whole day, only right now. So thank you for your kind attention. We'll just sit quietly a moment.
Thank you. There's a period for walking or standing or awareness in whatever posture you choose. And then the last sitting and chanting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.